Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the day two of the inaugural Southeast Asia Hebrew Language Colloquium, jointly sponsored by the School of Hebrew at Middlebury College, the Cambridge Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies, the Jakarta Hebrew Learning Program, STT REM, and the Israeli Embassy in Singapore, established joint. Uh, and, and also, of course, the Middle East Institute, where I am currently based out of. Like yesterday, I am in Lutfi, will be the moderator of the day. Uh, I would like to begin the day by bringing uh, some of us who were not able to attend yesterday up to date and to give them a recap of, the, of yesterday's proceeding, as well as perhaps maybe highlight some of the key points and questions uh, from yesterday that we can carry uh, on to today and develop further. In that regard, uh, this, is, this is fitting with MEI's broad approach of trying to always find a way to move forward. As the chairman of uh, MEI, Mr. Bilahari Kothi Khan, uh, reminded us yesterday at the start, there's important not just to take a step forward in the right, it, to take a step forward, but also to ensure that the step is in the right direction. Uh, so this, this event, the perhaps the first of its kind, exploring the possibility of nurturing Hebrew language programs in a region of the world that is at lying at a great distance from Israel or the Middle East more broadly, and often thought to be separated by uh, long uh, fissures of ideology, of politics, and of religion. Uh, following Mr. Bilahari's opening remarks, uh, we were elucidated by the ambassador Sagi Karni's uh, very insightful talk in which he, uh, he, he sort of timely, he gave us a timely reminder that despite all of these seeming gaps in between Southeast Asia and Israel, there remains great goodwill in nurturing such efforts and to developing such efforts further. Because of course, as we know, that uh, any relationship between two countries or two societies cannot be based solely on high level diplomatic talks, but it requires constant people to people engagement. And if we are talking about engagement, then perhaps there's, you know, can be nothing better than something like a language program or building scholarly relations and student exchange program as Ambassador Carney pointed out. Um, because language, and this was a key point of discussion yesterday, language is not just a, a way to express information or to convey information, but it's in, it is instead a vehicle for culture, is a vehicle for social norm, it's a window into another world. And it was this point with which we opened our first session yesterday with Dr. Ringwald uh, telling us on how in Middlebury summer program, which is one of the most well-renowned Hebrew language programs perhaps in the world, that one of the main challenges that they have been dealing with is this question of how to approach the question of culture in language studies program. Um, this is a challenge, as, as she rightly pointed out, for various reasons. One being that it's hard to even, it, that first we need to um, exactly point out what we mean when we say culture. Is culture 
the high culture, culture with a capital C, the culture that we see in, in religious texts, in uh, literature that can be considered national heritage, or does culture also institute culture with a small C, the stuff of daily life, the ordinary, the mundane, the often unreflected mannerisms and routines through which we as human society, we as human beings lead our daily lives. Now, I, I here would like to um, perhaps add another question that, can, that we can take into the discussion today. And that's the question of whose culture do we teach? Whose culture do we end up representing? Uh, because as anthropologists of late have been argued in various places, the culture is not just uh, the repeating patterns or the harmonies that we see in, in people or people doing this basically the same thing in different places, but it is also the, what we see in dissonances, in conflicts, in disharmonies. So, uh, so the question that I have is how do we also in, uh, in, in language study program better able to capture some of these disharmonies as well? Um, and this is not just to sort of uh, only for the point of, of uh, uh, like highlighting conflict, but also to move from an understand from a monophonic understanding of culture to a more polyphonic, and here I'm drawing up Bakhtin, uh, a, a more polyphonic sense or multiplicity of cultures. Uh, Dr. Ringwald uh, pointed us out to perhaps three main approaches uh, in currency in language pedagogy today to deal with these challenges. First, being the more non-interventionist approach, which suggests that if language is already a vehicle for culture, then there's no need to deliberately smuggle in this a reified you know, conception of culture. Students will automatically learn it through the language itself. Now that there's the other school that she introduced us to, which is which has a more forward position, uh, let's say, argued that disembedding culture, uh, disembedding language from the culture in which uh, it, it originates from or the culture of its native speaker actually hinders language growth itself. Because until you are able to learn the customs and the culture, uh, the language skills would remain very limited. And, and the idea here is that the, the ultimate mark of learning a language is being able to engage and converse with the native population itself. So uh, this school suggests that, that not only should uh, language training involve uh, teaching people in, in, in through text, but also real world situations, sort of simulating real world situations or even immersing them in, 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 the, in the bazaar, in a family dinner, in, uh, in a classroom setting, so various settings where you immerse them in order to enable them and equip them to deal with, the, with not just the language skills required, but also the cultural competency. Here, Dr. Ringwald elaborated one particular, in, in, in one particular um, tool that she found particularly helpful of uh, using anecdotes and using anecdotes as a teaching tool to impart or to give a window into these everyday interaction and normal everyday life as well. And that point uh, gave us an excellent bridge to moving into the second panel of the day with Dr. Yaron Felix's uh, insightful presentation on that reminded us that, that 
that vernacular culture, particularly in the case of Hebrew, cannot be disassociated from the literary cultures because of the particular history through which it, it, it was generated. Uh, Dr. Pella gave us uh, through, um, uh, through examples of various texts from early 20th century, a quick overview of how modern uh, Hebrew language that is commonly used in Israel today actually came to be. And his point was very well taken that, that, that in sharp contrast to many of the other modern languages, this ancient Hebrew language uh, came to be modernized through a very different route. Instead, where it had for centuries uh, remained a language of maybe the clergy and a language of, of religious sacred texts and a language of communication between the diaspora in different places. It went from that uh, to, uh, to, to a modern language through a very strange route of, of, literary, uh, of literary experimentation. And it was that literary experimentation that opened the door into vernacular culture. So here, the word, and like most other language, vernacular uh, preceded, or vernacular did not precede literary development, but literary development kind of ushered in, uh, it, it ushered in more popular usage. Um, and under, Dr. Pilek uh, also warned us perhaps of a kind of historical determinism that we are often guilty today of reading what has happened or what the end point be, reading it back into history as the only possible or only possible route that history could have taken. And this is specifically important in the case of, of Hebrew, as he mentioned, that it was that at the turn of the 20th century, uh, it was not very, it, 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 did, it was not, it did not seem very plausible or possible that, that Hebrew would end up being the language of uh, of the bazaar, of the state, and of everyday life because of the limited uh, uses that it had focused to. Um, and he gave us that, uh, he told us that, that this uh, development was made possible by the efforts of various authors and artists, both men and for the first time women as well, who joined in the production of this new language and also shaped particular dialects, shaped the syntax, the grammar uh, uh, by, by borrowing and or by at least studying various different language traditions as well. Um, so here I would like to uh, maybe throw a question that we can chew on today. And this is this comes from uh, Dr. Pilek's provocation to think about what if histories. And it's a question that I myself am very interested in about what else could have happened, this, uh, the, the, a certain historical approach. Um, so here I would like to say what, what Dr. Pilek suggested that the the, the, the history of modern Hebrew uh, was built on uh, a particular uh, Jewish community as well who were trained in, uh, in European Jewish traditions or in European traditions more broadly. And modern Hebrew reflects that, uh, that base uh, right currently. But I wanna ask that uh, this question that, that, you know, that, that I, I'm no scholar of Jewish diaspora, but uh, the, the dispersal happened in many directions beyond Europe. And we know that there were sizable communities uh, of, of the Sephardics, of Baghdadis, of, uh, of, uh, who, who had their own language tradition of Judeo-Arabic tradition, Judeo-Persian tradition. Or if you go to India, we had the Cochin Jews who had their Judeo-Malayali dialects. And even in China, we had 
smaller communities like the Kaifeng do. So my question today is, is that with perhaps the growth of Hebrew programs in Southeast Asia and Asia more broadly, is there a possibility of revival of these traditions as well? Does the route of learning Hebrew have to go the same, go from Israel of modern Hebrew language and coming in here? Or is there a possibility that at a certain later stage that these other traditions can be explored, can be developed to really bring out the polyphony of Hebrew and to, uh, and to, to elevate it as a kind of a global language as well? Um, with this, I want to now go into the third and the last presentation that we had yesterday with uh, Ustad Saleh, uh, who, who, Ustad Sapri Saleh, who, to my knowledge, it runs the only Hebrew language program in the region. Um, it was very heartening to hear Ustad talk about of how there is great interest within Indonesia for learning Hebrew. It came somewhat as a shock to me. Um, and it was, it, it, what was most particularly interesting was that, that the people or the majority of people who were coming to Hebrew were not uh, trying to distance themselves from Islam or Muslim culture and tradition, but were actually thought that Hebrew was an excellent door for them to better their understanding of, uh, of Islamic traditions of the Quran in particular. And so the, he mentioned that, that Hebrew was considered is, is, is as, a, as a sister language of Arabic. Um, and, and it comes as no surprise, of course, that these are two Semitic languages that share a lot grammatically in common. Um, and, and, and Ustaz Saleh wonderfully depicted uh, how the various phonetic structures, the grammar, the scripture, the vocabulary um, of both Hebrew and Arabic share so much in common. Uh, to a point where it almost seems like that both have copy pasted from each other. And for students who already know Arabic, it becomes a, very, it becomes a, a much more simpler task to learn Hebrew. Um, it, but more than just the language itself, uh, what it seems that, that Ustad Saleh suggested that knowing Hebrew allows students to better translate and understand Quran itself and it opens them to a whole host of Isaiah lords, biblical traditions, Abrahamic traditions that are shared between these various Abrahamic faiths. So, so, uh, so in, 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 in light of um, uh, this uh, openness to learn Hebrew to better understand Islam, what Ustad Saleh suggests, um, the biggest, he suggested the biggest hurdle to growth of Hebrew program in this region is not social misperceptions as one might think, or even ideological divides or political divides, but it is actually a very, um, a, 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 an institutional problems almost that could be pinpointed out. The, the, the limit, the main hurdle is that there is not enough uh, language training material uh, available in this region. And there's a lack of expertise uh, that could help take enthusiastic students or enthusiastic learners to a more advanced level. So, so that is the main hurdle and it's, it's, it, it's good because that's a hurdle that can be worked upon, that's a solution that we can talk about and we can move forward. And here in the end, I would like to uh, ask another or throw another question or let's say suggestion. And this relates to the, the, the point that I made earlier as well uh, with, uh, with regards to Dr. Pelek's talk, is that if we are to grow 
Hebrew language programs in the Southeast Asia. Can a possible or a, can a possible or a more fruitful route be through Arabic language programs, both in university and to take Dr. S uh, Mr. Saleh's uh, provocation to see it as a sister language more seriously. So we build uh, or add on Hebrew language courses to Arabic programs in universities, in independent learning centers, and even perhaps traditional madrasa. Um, so, so the question is, what would, a, what would a step in this right direction actually entail? Um, with this, uh, I want to, uh, uh, like that, that about sums up my recap of the day. And I would not like to take any more time and leave the floor to people who know much more about the subject and move into our panel, our first panel for the day. Um, so the first panel of the day is called the pronunciation of Hebrew from antiquity to the present day. And I would like to invite uh, Professor Jeffrey Khan, who is a professor of Hebrew at the University of Cambridge in United Kingdom. Uh, if I could just give a brief uh, bio or introduction to uh, Dr. Khan. Uh, Dr. Khan's research publication focused on three main fields, biblical Hebrew language, especially medieval tradition, Neo-Aramaic dialectology and medieval Arabic documents. He's a general editor of the Encyclopedia of Hebrew Language and Linguistics and a senior editor of journal Semantic Studies. Semantic Studies. His most recent book, <coughs> I'm sorry. His most recent book is the Tiberian Pronunciation Tradition of Biblical Hebrew, two volumes, Cambridge Semitic Language and Culture One. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Khan, for joining us today. And I leave the floor to you now. Good. Well, thank you very much indeed uh, for that introduction, Amin. And um, I'd like to say, uh, how privileged I feel to be part of this uh, event. Uh, I think it's a really important event bringing together Hebrew language studies and the culture of Hebrew culture together with uh, this, uh, the, the, the study of, a, of, of wider cultures in, in, across the world and in particular in, in, in East Asia and uh, in the region of Singapore. Um, I'm going to talk to you about uh, very briefly about the, the, the history of the pronunciation of Hebrew and I think this is going to show that um, tracing this history shows how much Hebrew is the story of Hebrew is very much a, a global story it shows how, how, how the, the Jews were very much um, in contact with numerous other cultures uh, across the world indeed um, and so I'm going to first start by sharing my screen. Um, and um, right. So I'm hoping uh, that's um, you can all see that. Yeah, can you all see that? Yes. Right. So um, first of all, um, I'd like to um, have a quick look at the uh this this chart here showing the, the the history of the pronunciation of hebrew i most of you who have been learning hebrew i'm assuming are have been learning hebrew essentially probably modern israeli hebrew and are familiar with the pronunciation of hebrew in, in modern israel today so-called uh, modern israeli hebrew is normally referred to as 
Now, um, and as you would have heard yesterday from Yaron Peleg's talk, um, Hebrew was revived uh, you know, in the 20th century, and for many centuries, it was not a vernacular language. Um, it's normally thought that it, 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 it was a vernacular language until about 300, uh, third century of, of the common era. Um, uh, and thereafter, it was not a vernacular language. Um, and then it only became a vernacular language again in, in, in the 20th century. Now, the point is, though, that during those many centuries, uh, between the third century and the 20th century, Hebrew remained alive in many, many ways. It, of course, it remained alive as a written language. But what I'd like to draw attention, your attention to today is that it remained alive also as a, as a, as a, as a spoken or, 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 or an, an oral, uh, in oral form. That is to say, it was not simply read uh, in a sort of quiet way. It was actually pronounced in in, in variety of contexts, and and one of these uh, contexts was the recitation of holy scripture in, in an oral recitation. But also, it was pronounced in various other contexts. I mean, it, it was pronounced embedded within different Jewish languages. I mean, there were Hebrew words embedded within Hebrew language in various Jewish languages. And also it was pronounced in um, learned discourse to some extent. Now, the point where I want to see, if you can just see my cursor, that the modern Israeli Hebrew um, is essentially, uh, the, 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 the main components of the pronunciation of modern Israeli Hebrew uh, is, is what we call a Sephardi pronunciation tradition. Now this has this sort of uh, this relationship, this gene, uh, genealogical relationship, which goes all the way back to the so-called Second Temple period. That is two thousand years ago, um, and uh, you can see. I perhaps I haven't got time to go into all the details here, but basically, you see that um, it, there's a main, major split in the in, in the Second Temple period between the so-called Samaritan tradition and the Jewish traditions. Uh, the Samaritans uh, separated themselves from Judaism in, in, the, in the early Second Temple period. And then the Jewish traditions really split into essentially three main traditions of pronunciation, Palestinian, Tiberian, and Babylonian. And it is the Sephardi tradition which um, became the base of the modern Israeli tradition, and that is essentially the so-called Palestinian tradition. Now, the Tiberian tradition, however, was the tradition that gave rise to what everybody is familiar with in terms of the um, the vocalization, these these sight little vowel sounds we see in in biblical Hebrew, and um, these come from essentially medieval manuscripts of the Bible, and uh, these are the vocalization signs which are used to this day in, in modern Israeli Hebrew. So you'll see you will see these vocalization signs in, in street names, for example. Now, um, the Tiberian pronunciation tradition is an ancient tradition of pronunciation which came from um, the Second Temple period. It was transmitted through the first millennium CE orally. Uh, originally, in the Second Temple period, the Jews would read the Bible from scrolls like this without any guidance about pronunciation of vowels. 
But in the Middle Ages, they started to uh, uh, write their Bibles in so-called codices, that is a book form. And this was very, this was very much inspired by the Islamic environment because in the, in the Islamic environment, uh, the Quran uh, was being was written from the very beginning of Islam in a, in a form of a codex, in a form of bound book form. And so the Jews in the Middle Ages sort of took over this idea of the codex to write their Hebrew Bible. And they also, um, even in certain Jews uh, in the Middle Ages, they even started to write Hebrew in Arabic script, inspired very much by the, by the model of the Quran. So they were representing the pronunciation, the recitation, the oral tradition of Hebrew in Arabic script. Uh, and this is, a, this is a transcription. And this is one of these, the, 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 these transcriptions of Hebrew into Arabic script, very much inspired by the Quran. Now, um, we, from the discovery of various manuscripts, uh, such as the Cairo Geniza, this is a picture of a Geniza, this is a collection of Hebrew manuscripts in Cambridge, dating back to the Middle Ages. Uh, we have been able to reconstruct a lot about the Tiberian pronunciation tradition of Hebrew from various treatises, um, grammatical treatises or so-called Masoretic treatises, dis descriptions of pronunciation. Um, and I've recently published a book which can, which, uh, in which I've reconstructed the pronunciation of Tiberian Hebrew. Now, the point is, uh, perhaps I should just double, just make clear again, that Tiberian Hebrew here is a tradition which was used, was, was transmitted from antiquity to the Middle Ages, and it gave rise to the, the vowel signs which we use today. However, after the Middle Ages, it became extinct. It was not transmitted anymore, but the Palestinian tradition became the most dominant pronunciation tradition. And people, the Jewish community started to pronounce Hebrew uh, with this Palestinian tradition, but they used the vocalization signs developed to represent Tiberian tradition. So that means there's a mismatch between the pronunciation and the vowel signs. And that mismatch continues to this day in the modern Israeli Hebrew, because the type, these vowel signs, which I showed you on things like these road signs, were created for the Tiberian tradition of Hebrew, not the modern Israeli, that is to say the Palestinian Sephardi tradition. So there's this mismatch. So it has been, it's been, a, we've been, uh, it's, a lot of my work over the last couple of decades has been uh, focusing on reconstructing this, this, this lost tradition. So I've recently reconstructed it, and I'll give you a little, little, little play a little bit of how it would have sounded according to my reconstruction. So, um, in the Middle Ages, there were also other traditions of pronunciation. Um, there was the so-called Babylonian tradition, and we have manuscripts, most, mostly from the Geniza, which have different signs, different vowel signs, which represent these different pronunciations. We have the so-called Palestinian vocalization, which again is very is different from the Tiberian, and that reflects a different tradition, the so-called Palestinian tradition, which was actually very widely 
uh, used in, in Jewish communities in the Middle East. And so what happened was that uh, when the Tiberian tradition became extinct, mainly because there were very few people using it, apart from sort of the scholarly sort of elite, it was the Palestinian tradition which became particularly widespread. I mean, this is what was this was a tradition of essentially Palestine, of majority of communities, and this spread out into the world. Uh, it went into Europe, essentially, uh, in, through Italy up into the Rhineland and into into Europe and into Spain and across North Africa. The Babylonian traditions survived only in Yemen. This this, this actually has spread to Yemen, but then disappeared. In, elsewhere. Um, so the Yemenites have therefore a somewhat different tradition than the Sephardi tradition of pronouncing Hebrew. Uh, for example, they, um, their Kamets is somewhat different. Uh, in Sephardi Hebrew, as we'll see, it's a sort of ah, as in modern Hebrew. The, uh, the Yemenites would pronounce their Kamets as or, and the Segol and Patach that would be, would be pronounced the same. So they would say things like Wernisjav, that is Venisgav, Wernisjav, and they also say, instead of saying Kesef, they'd say Kasef. So in other words, they wouldn't make a distinction between Segol and Patach. And that's the inheritance, the heritage from the Babylonian tradition. Um, I'll give you a quick, uh, play you a quick clip from a, 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 a Yemenite. Um, sorry, if I can, I just get from a Yemenite reading tradition. We can hear how, how the Yemenites pronounced the Hebrew. Yeah, I mean, I won't, haven't got time to go into detail, but you see it sounds rather different from uh, modern Israeli Hebrew. Now, the Sephardi traditions is, is a very sort of wide group of of pronunciation traditions, and they can be split essentially into the traditions which spread into Europe, such as, and, uh, and those which spread into Asia and African communities. Um, now in Europe, all of these traditions of pronunciation were, were, were influenced by languages of vernacular languages of the community. So in Europe, there was an, these, these, these Traditions were being used by Ladino-speaking communities, Italian-speaking communities, etc. And in the East, in Asia, by these, these traditions on the right, Arabic, Aramaic, Persian, Georgian, Malayalam, speaking communities in Cochin, in India. And all of these had some degree of impact on the pronunciation. Um, I haven't got time perhaps to get too much detail, but Baghdadi Jewish uh, Jews, for example, have a Sephardi tradition. And this has a vowel system very much like modern Israeli Hebrew. In other words, Kamets and Patach are pronounced the same. So you say Yavod and Shana, basically. Uh, and Segol and Serer are essentially the same. So you say, uh, um, you say Yerechi, Be'ene, Eretz. I mean, there's no real distinction between Kamets, uh, between Segol and Serer. Um, Iran and Central Asia, there's been a Sephardi tradition. This is an example of how they adapt themselves to some of the vernacular languages. Comets has been backed a bit to a sort of off pronunciation under the influence, it seems, of Persian. So there's a sort of some degree of adaptation. I hear quickly here a little bit of the Bukharan community. <laughs> 
Yeah, so um, basically here, this this is the, the Bukharan tradition, is a Sephardi tradition, but Kamets has been pronounced as oh, under the influence of vernacular Iranian languages, uh, like in Uzbekistan. Um, and uh, so uh, Ashkenazi tradition is the, the tradition of Ashkenazi Jews in Eastern Europe, but that in origin is important to recognize it from Palestine, the Palestinian tradition. Um, and it really only developed its very characteristic Ashkenazi features in the about the 14th century. Uh, Ashkenazi itself is very diverse. It's split into Western and Eastern branches. Um, and very briefly, uh, Kamets is realized nowadays as an O oh in some forms of Ashkenazi and sometimes as an O oh in some other forms. You say things like Umain for uh, our men or Omein in, in certain varieties of Ashkenazi. But these developments actually in the Safari tradition are somewhat later under the influence of Germanic. Um, now, finally, uh, let's look at Samaritan. Now, Samaritan split off from Jewish traditions way back in the Second Temple period, but it still survives to this day uh, in, in uh, various parts of, of Israel, in Cholon, for example, and also Mike Gerizin in, near Nablus. And listen to just a briefly a, a Samaritan pronouncing Hebrew. <laughs> So you can see that it doesn't sound very much like uh, modern Israeli Hebrew at all. That's because this is a still a living tradition of Hebrew. So, uh, and that has, and finally, something about the uh, pronunciation of um, the, the so-called Hebrew component in, Jew, or, or, in Jewish languages. The Jews, when they spread out across the vernacular, adopted a variety of vernacular forms of speech. Um, uh, there are many languages, we, we've mentioned a lot of them already. Now, within these Jewish languages, there are many Hebrew words and phrases survive. And these are, if you like, living survivals of, of, of Hebrew embedded within another language. So Hebrew has not only survived in these liturgical traditions, it survived within vernacular forms of speech embedded within these languages. And I just give you a very brief example from the Jews of Kurdistan and, and Western Iran who speak, or until the 19th, until recently, they spoke Aramaic of an ancient language. And you'll just, here, let me just play one sentence with a uh, speaker of Aramaic, whom I found, by the way, it's a, it's a Jewish community in Kazakhstan, in Almaty, who had migrated there from Iran some, some generations ago. But listen to how, how she, she speaks. Uh, this is a description about a marriage, and she's talking about the bridegroom. And she doesn't say chatan, she says hoton. Now that is an ancient pronunciation of Hebrew, different from the Sephardi tradition, which is embedded within the speech of these, these ancient vernacular languages. So I think my time is up, so I better stop sharing there. But that just gives you a flavor of the diversity of pronunciation of Hebrew and, the, and, it, and its sort of living tradition and its, and its development through contact with other cultures. And also, as I showed with the development of the codex, the influence of the cultural influence of, of other cultures on the formation of the written form of the language.
thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for that talk. Uh, as just as yesterday, um, to ask a question, you could either raise your hand and I can call upon you to unmute and turn on your mic, uh, camera, or you can just send it to me in writing as well, and I will read it out for you. Um, while we wait uh, for, for the question, um, thank you, Dr. Khan, for that uh, excellent presentation. I mean, it, it gave us sort of answered a lot of questions that I had in my mind. Um, in, but I want to ask that in your opinion, in terms of pedagogy, is there a possibility of like, are like the revival of these traditions or, and, and so on? Or are these going to be in your, like, uh, in your opinion, limited to um, these almost like leftover uh, forms? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of pedagogy, I'd say um, at, at the very least, students should be made aware of, of the existence of this diversity of, of, of traditions of Hebrew. And also the fact that Hebrew, these traditions have been a continuous living, uh, been alive as, 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 as spoken, either pr pronounced oral sort of, uh, uh, orally alive. Um, and to really to get, get away from the idea that Hebrew is somehow a revived dead language. Um, and also the fact, you know, that, that, that the Jewish community, these reflect the, 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 the cultural diversity of the Jewish community and, and, and their, their global diaspora. Um, so I think that element is an important element of, I mean, you were talking earlier about culture and language teaching. I mean, I think certainly from the point of view of Hebrew culture, I think that's important to, to, to teach students. Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, I have a few questions uh, that I've received, but I'll first go to Ustad uh, Saleh. Um, if you could unmute yourself and uh, ask your question. Thank you very much. Um, yes, good, good evening, everyone. Uh, Mr. Govri, that I have a questions regarding of the split. Um, What's was the trigger of uh, the trigger or the reason of the split uh, between the Samaritan and Jewish traditions in in terms of uh, pronunciation of reading? Is there any uh, political reasons, or <clears throat> is there also different understanding about uh, after split of the pronunciation? Is there um, the difference also in understanding about the text itself? It's remind me also about the split, uh, the language of Western Aramaic to in Eastern Aramaic. Is this the case as uh, simil has similarity of the, the process of a split? Well, I mean, linguistic differences are, are generated by various factors. I mean, one of them is geographical, but another very important factor is, 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 is a sense of community identity. In other words, a social factor. Uh, and you see this very much in the Middle East today, whereby Arabic dialects spoken by Muslims, Jews, and Christians are different. So you can have the classic cases is, is the Baghdad until the 1950s, where you know Jews spoke one dialect of Arabic, Muslims another, and the Christians another. And these sort of different sorts of dialects developed through a different cultural um, community identity. So with the Samaritans, the main motivation or the main factor which was creating this difference in pronunciation was different sense of communal identity. 
Um, I mean, I haven't got time to go into all the reasons why the Samaritans broke away from Judaism. I mean, all, all, all kinds of theological differences. But the crucial point is that this community, this difference in community identity was, is, was driving this, this, this sort of distinction in, in, in linguistic chain. So that's, that's sort of a brief answer to your question. Thank you. Thank you. I have a question here from Bao Zhuan. And Bao Zhuan, I think that thank you, Professor Khan, for the presentation. Though my primary interest is not in non-biblical Hebrew, I was nonetheless intrigued by the cadence of the Hasidic community I visited in Brooklyn. They spoke to me in English, but in their native tongue amongst themselves. Can you identify the type spoken by this diaspora? And there's another question that, that they are asking. It's the, the children of the community also appear to converse in a different way. Is there any difference in Hebrew for different age group like Japanese? Um, she's saying so Hasidic community in Brooklyn. Is, is that what the question is? Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Well, that, that will be, yes, that, that will be a, an Ashkenazi sort of community. They would be pronouncing Hebrew according to an Ashkenazi tradition, which uh, has been influenced very much by Yiddish, which is a is a form of essentially a form of German, uh, and so their vernacular would be Yiddish. I imagine that is what he was hearing. Um, but the the thing is, as I was trying to s explain, the Ashkenazi traditions go back ultimately to the Sephardi traditions, a Palestinian tradition, which was a common tradition of pronouncing Hebrew in throughout Palestine and from an, late antiquity to the Middle Ages. But it underwent this change about the 14th century under the influence of German. Uh, there, was, there were sound shifts, changes in German vernacular. And these affected um, the, the Ashkenazi tradition. So the you know, that very characteristic pronunciation of which you still hear among the Hasidic communities is because of this influence of, 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 of German. Um, but historically, it goes all the way back. It, 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 it related to the same traditions as you hear today, both in Sephardi communities from various parts of Europe, Middle East, and indeed even uh, Cochin in India. Uh, essentially, these, this Palestinian tradition had this global diaspora. Hmm. And the other question is also about, like, is there a different uh, dialect amongst age groups as well? Age groups? Well, I mean, not, not so much in recitation. I mean, in, in, certainly in, in vernacular, yes. I mean, the, 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 one, of the, one of the disturbing things is that a lot of these Jewish vernaculars, these so-called Jewish languages, are now endangered because they're now not being spoken so fluently by younger generations. Um, and um, also it's true to say that in fact many Jewish communities now are perhaps losing their traditional form of liturgical pronunciation and, 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 and more not being leveled more and more with that of Israeli Hebrew. So, and that I would say would be also a phenomenon of the younger generation. Thank, thank you. We have a question from Nofar Ramon. Um, if you could uh, unmute yourself and turn on the camera and ask your question. Hi, so thank you for the talk. It was very interesting. Um, I have a question that is a bit unrelated about stress. Um, in biblical Hebrew, 
um, especially in construct states. So um, it is assumed that there is secondary stress there. And in modern Hebrew, we know that secondary stress no longer exists or like, I don't know if it ever did. So um, what is your opinion? That? Yeah, it was, <laughs> it's quite a, I mean, the whole question of stress is quite a sort of a complicated situation. Um, well, basically, construct state very briefly uh, the construct state um, historically it, it would appear that words in construct state were essentially not stressed i mean there were so-called clitics um, and what happened over the course of the development of the tiberian pronunciation tradition which is actually what is if you like fossilized in the masoretic text which is which is represented by the the, the, the vowel signs and the so-called accent signs and the, you know, the distribution of makef and, and not makef. What happened there was that there was a gradual, in some cases, a gradual sort of um, tendency to start to stress the construct in certain, in certain cases with a, with a primary stress actually, though it would have, when that occurred, it would have what's known as a conjunctive accent. In other words, it's a sort of a I'm not sure if that's what you mean by a, a, a secondary sense, but it's, it's a conjunctive accent. In other words, it is in the same prosodic phrase of what follows. Um, but it was a gradual process, it seems, because the vocalization signs to reflect a historical period in which the construct must have been pronounced as a clitic without stress. Uh, so there's a sort of a gradual, this, this reflects a, a general tendency in the Taliban Chun pronunciation to start to pronounce things more and more carefully. And, it, and some of these construct, words and constructs were you know, like pulled apart and pronounced separately. In, in modern Hebrew, uh, <laughs> it's difficult to say what, um, it depends on the speed of utterance, I suppose. I mean, that's one of these things about the modern Hebrew. Uh, but uh, essentially, and in vernacular language, you would typically not stress a construct. But in the in a liturgical language, there was a greater tendency to sort of start to pronounce things more carefully and pull them pull things apart. I think that was very briefly. That's how I respond. <laughs> we we are running out of time, but I think I'll ask uh, one last question. Uh, um, it comes from Elizabeth Garner, and she's asking that, do you see any trends in, in today's modern Hebrew pronunciation? Maybe ways it is currently evolving, and how do you think it might evolve in the future? Yeah, well, modern Hebrew pronunciation is, um, I mean, all languages change all from generation to generation. Um, and in fact, uh, Certainly, if you listen to the old films, Israeli films, you can definitely hear differences in pronunciation, particularly in the pronunciation of certain elements, like the art, the resh, for example, is clearly changing pronunciation. You know, the older generation is still still alive today. will be being pronounced in the resh as a as a so-called uh, a trill of uvula trill, but nowadays it's what's known as an uvula continuum and uh, that, that, that's one of the changes but it's changing all the time and of course there's been impact of vernacular languages or from the gathering of the diaspora um, 
and uh, this influence of uh, um, the social linguistic factors there as well. I mean, there's this whole sort of complicated question about the, the sort of conflict, between, conflict or the sort of the differences between Mizrahi pronunciation and Ashkenazi pronunciation and some of the Jews of the, from the, uh, from the from countries, the Arabic speaking countries, for example, are continuing to speak, pronounce that so-called pharyngeals, ein and het, um, and they are still heard to this day. Uh, and they are under certain amount of social linguistic sort of a competition with the, with the more standard pronunciation. Um, but the, the, the way things will change is, is largely due to social linguistic factors and um, uh, so yeah, but it is changing that all is it because it's a living vernacular language. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for that. My apologies to some of the people who sent in questions, but I couldn't get to. We could maybe come back to them at the end of the session if, if you're okay with that, Dr. Khan. Um, uh, with that, uh, I want to now move into our next session. Uh, the next session is titled A Preliminary Notes on Hebrew in Indonesia from a Sacred Language to Metalingual of Identity. And I would like to, uh, you know, it gives me great pleasure to invite Mr. Leonard Epiphras, uh, who is an instructor and researcher at the University of Christian Duta Wakan and the Indonesian Consortium for Religious Studies, ICRF in Yogyakarta, Indonesia. Um, to brief, give a brief bio, he was a recipient of the number of fellowships, including Fulbright, Endeavor, and Schusterman Institute for Israeli Studies, Dr. Epiphras, teaches Judaism, advanced study of Christianity and history of religions. His research publication includes the Jewish community in Indonesia, religion online and interreligious topics. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Epiphras for joining us today. And if I could ask you to take over the stage now. Yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Lucy, for your kind uh, introduction. Shalom, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. And Ramadan Karim for to my Muslim friends, I'm truly grateful to be part in this presentation event. And it is an honor as well to meet in person Professor Jeffrey Khan, as my dissertation touched upon your work as well on Judeo-Arabic. Okay, I'm sharing my screen now. Yeah, okay, hopefully you can see my uh, slides. Okay, my presentation is part of my research on Hebrew in Indonesia that unfortunately delayed because of the pandemic. And it, hence it is a preliminary observation and more or less following a historical manner. And uh, mostly among I, my research among Indonesian Christians. As you can see in the screen, there is a Hebrew expression on the front of the synagogue of Tondano in North Sulawesi province. It says, Bet Knesset Sha'ar Hashimayim. And the smaller one, Minahasa, Sulawesi Sapon, Indonesia. Uh, I took this picture during the Indonesian Independence Day in 2019. Okay, when Hebrew exposed in Indonesia for the first time, it is very hard to answer. But I came across with a research by Professor Rusmin Tumangor from State Islamic University, Sharif Law, in which, as an anthropologist of health, he conducted research on local medicine in Barus or Fansur, North Sumatra province, 27 years ago. 
So you can see the result in the screen. This was reported by the National Geographic Indonesia in their website. Among many of his findings, he suspected a local incantation, presumably a Hebrew origin. Okay, um, uh, if the finding is correct, it might be not so much surprising in fact, because Barus or Fansur as classical Arabic sources or also Cairo uh, Geniza call it, indeed a historical site renowned since the early of millennia, even by the Egyptians and the Greeks as the source of camphor or in Indonesia it's called Kapur Barus. Uh, the finding is not conclusive yet, but in my blog writing, I attempted to relate Professor Tomanger's finding with the earliest presence of Arab Jewish traders in Indonesian archipelago. First in Srivijaya in 10th century, according to an Arabic uh, source, and later in Barus or Fansur in 12th to 13th century, as informed by the Cairo Genisa, it's also mentioned by Professor Khan. On the, screen, on, the, on the screen, you can see a medieval manuscript from Cairo Geniza, stated an Arabic term, Al-Kafur Al-Fansuri, not in Arabic script, but in Judeo-Arabic as touched upon as well by Dr. Lutfi. So Judeo-Arabic is Arabic written in Hebrew script. Uh, you may read further in my discussion, but unfortunately in Indonesian, in the link I mentioned in the screen. Yeah, centrist. Uh, the centuries to come, very little evidence of a Hebrew discourse in Indonesia. Indeed, Christianity and in particular Western European missionary and Bible translators were the, were the, the agent introducing Hebrew in Indonesia. Of course, not as a communication language, but as part of Christian specific and Christian theological uh, discourse. Nevertheless, since the very beginning, the Christian missionaries were intended to contextualize the Bible messages into the local vernaculars. Here, the statement by Peter Jans can epitomize uh, the Bible translator positions. He's a, he was a Mennonite Bible translator. My job is not to transfer the Greek or Hebrew pronunciation to Japanese. Japanese is one of the ethnic groups in Indonesia. My job is to Japanize them. Okay. Um, yeah, but Hebrew is extremely important in biblical hermeneutics, notably for the Protestants and Reformed Protestant tradition maintain what's called the idea of Hebraica Veritas, the truth of the Hebrew in approaching the Bible, notably the Hebrew scripture or the Old Testament in uh, Christian tradition. Protestant seminaries provided Hebrew courts this until the present day, uh, even though Catholics not so much. Beyond that, it is also potent among average Christian as many Christian names are Hebrew and many Protestant churches named after biblical Hebrew names, such as Betefila, Beniel, Ebenezer, Emmanuel, and so on. And also Hebrew keywords indeed are part Christian theological uh, construction. Uh, furthermore, when the coastal churches since 1980s adapting some Hebrew languages in their church songs, either partially or in full, including the Indonesian song uh, entitled Praise Jehovah, which followed the rhyme of Hatikva, uh, Israeli national anthem. While even though Hebrew in Indonesian is came from Ibrani, a loanword from Arabic, there is no consciousness whatsoever the historical linguistic interaction between Arabic and Hebrew in the past, in which the Hebrew grammar owe very much from Arabic linguistic uh, system. One cornerstone of Hebrew in Indonesia was that in 1999, when the Indonesian Bible Society produced the Hebrew Indonesian Bible that 
but unfortunately, mostly for only for academic uh, purposes. Beyond Christianity, Hebrew loanwords enter Indonesian dictionary. There are at least, in fact, more than three, but uh, three is definitely uh, mentioned by the Center of Lang Indonesian Language, uh, the um, Ministry of Education that's coming from Hebrew. But in fact, I found that uh, there are six, six uh, loanwords that's entered into uh, Indonesian dictionary. Uh, there, is, there are kibbutz, betel, rabbi or rabbi, hallelujah, masmur, messiah or al-masih, and so on. Uh, there are also several Hebrew Indonesian dictionary, but mostly for biblical studies purpose. Up until More Sapri, I, I call uh, Ustad Sapri as More Sapri, produced Hebrew Indonesian dictionary. It was the only, it was the only modern Hebrew dictionary in Indonesia. The rest mostly for biblical studies purpose. Some departments in Indonesian university, especially non-Christian universities, such as uh, having a uh, Hebrew uh, course as well, especially in Arabic literature department or international relationship. I'm not sure how they still uh, still uh, at work, but uh, as far as my understanding, uh, a few years ago, I found several, uh, I found uh, some of the uh, Hebrew teachers in Arabic literature department. I'm aware as well that Indonesian Ahmadi community, a Muslim community uh, from Ahmadiyya, also provided Hebrew course that I think is related to their, uh, because of their Mirza Gulam Ahmad, the founder of Ahmadiyya, having a revelation that's uh, some of, one of the revelations mentioned Hebrew uh, phrases on that. So that's, I think, became a kind of uh, force for Ahmadi community, global Ahmadi community to study Hebrew uh, as well. Okay, I mentioned about reformation. The reformation in, uh, era in 1998 brought a drastic political and religious changes, uh, and it ushered for stronger transnational religious uh, discourse. Earlier than that, in Oslo Accord in 1993, the Israeli-Palestinian Peace Accord indirectly stimulated a new Christian consciousness on Hebrew, as it opened the possibility for Indonesian to visit Israel. As Ambassador Karni yesterday mentioned, there were at least 40,000 Indonesian pilgrims to Israel before the pandemic. My earlier research demonstrated that some of Christian leadership embraced Judaic or Jewish subculture in their theological construction and also even rituals started about this period in 1993 onward, but it was intensified after the Reformation, especially with the emergence of Messianic Christianity, uh, the Hebraic root uh, movement and sacred name uh, movement, and also the emergence of new Jewish identification, and of course, more and more Judaic enthusiasts, even among the Muslim, as more established students, might inform us, some of them also uh, attending this uh, meeting as well. But indeed, Hebrew is yet to be a communication language. It is, it is more really religious language and for Christian identity uh, formation. There were also authority confession in which as earlier I mentioned that Hebrew discourse is mostly restricted in the Protestant seminaries and or developed within the Indonesian Bible Society. Now it is also spread out among larger Christian circles. 
it is very easy nowadays to find a Facebook wall with uh, Hebrew greetings and biblical passages. I display here the interlinear Bible picture on the screen. Interlinear Bible show the original language, Hebrew, for example, for the Old Testament or Greek for New Testament, and the literal English translation in subscription. It's like a subtitle in a movie. Uh, indeed, it helps the non-specialist Christian to learn the translation, but at the same time, it creates a new confidence that sometimes challenges the official translation provided by the Indonesian Bible Society. For Indonesian Bible Society, translation is a very serious thing. They need years in order to even to judge single word translation into Indonesian or to uh, Indonesian uh, ethnic groups. Uh, translation because uh, Indonesian Bible Society provided about 300 uh, ethnic or sub-ethnic groups language or translation in Indonesia. In conclusion, some preliminary conclusion can be drawn. Learning Hebrew is part of the globalization realities. We have to accept that, like or dislike. There are many Indonesians working in Israeli companies and some of regional governments in Indonesia already engage with Israel. It is an economic opportunity. So Hebrew in this regard, of course, will be part of this equation. Nevertheless, on the other hand, post-reformation Indonesia creates an ideological cocoon that transnational religious discourse became an option. Hebrew then is part of identity politics, notably among some Indonesian Christians. The, popular, the popularity of Hebrew was not an isolated phenomenon as it's, it is part in what I call semitophilia tendency, semitophilia tendencies among Muslims and Christians. Among Muslims, it marked with more ubiquity of Arabic languages in public space and upon children names. Among Christians, through the enthusiasm toward Judaic subculture. For them, Hebrew mobilized their religious aspiration on par with the Muslims. Uh, Muslims have, assalamu alaikum, Christians now have uh, shalom alaikum. Uh, uh, Muslims have Arabic, Christians have Hebrew. Muslims made big remits to Mecca. We Christians go to Jerusalem, something like that. So there's a competition. Thus, to a degree, it is marking a minority complex for uh, Christians. The last one, how about the prospect of Hebrew in Indonesia? Well, I rendered the enthusiasm displayed by Maurice Tafri that it can be furthered as a means for transnational interaction cultural exchanges and interreligious understanding. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for that talk. Uh, yeah, your camera is now back on. Okay, I'm gonna go into, I have a few questions already. I can start before we go to Ustaz uh, Safri. Uh, the question from Guy Lang Lukman and is asking that have there been setbacks to the defaultization of the greeting shalom amongst contemporary Indonesian Christians? I heard Christians from Nias who lamented that their local greetings gradual replacement by this Hebrew and in some ways foreign expression. Thank you. Uh, I call him as Gilang, my friend. Yeah, uh, yeah, this is a huge uh, challenge, especially because many Christians uh, develop what's so called contextual theology, 
archaeology that's coming up from Indonesian experience and more ethnic group for experience, you have to aware for non-Indonesian, you have to aware we have 700 ethnic groups and languages. So 400 ethnic groups and 700 languages. And I mentioned earlier that Indonesian Bible Society tried to outreach all of them. Uh, not necessarily because of the Christianization, but simply because there's a, a, a substantial number of Christian among those ethnics. So yes, that's uh, some challenges for them because nowadays modern and post-reformations taking Hebrew as even those shalom, that's a small minor gesture, cultural gesture that's important for many of Christians as a way to start on par with Muslims. Muslim having uh, assalamu alaikum then of course, we have shalom. And it's even more difficult because government that tried to be impartial in terms of religious uh, uh, issues, taking shalom as well as identification for Christian. So yes, it's very challenging and uh, we not yet come to the, to the conclusion and resolving this issue. I myself limited to use shalom even though I knew a little bit about Hebrew. I tend to use the local uh, calling, uh, Selamat Pagi, Selamat Siang. Uh, yeah, sometimes I use Shalom as well because that's already become part of the Indonesian uh, identity formation I mentioned in my presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ustad uh, Sapri, did you want to ask a question? No, I skip. Thank you, thank you very much. Okay. Uh, we have a question from uh, uh, Benny Hutayan. Uh, it's asking, uh, how do you see in the future of growing of Indonesian Christians to learn Hebrew as part of religion as well as culture? Well, I welcome that uh, development. Uh, this is rather surprising. Uh, I met, I knew uh, More Sapri, the name very famous uh, two, three years ago, but only last year I have a chance to meet him personally and uh, immediately be friended with him. And his uh, kind of epitomized the direction of Hebrew exposure in Indonesia. That's now why Christians, not all Christians truly enthusiastic on this kind of issue, not only Hebrew, but also on Judaism and so on because they're focusing on more on uh, contextual theology. This is a very uh, unique situation when, when the Muslims that's taking over that, uh, that uh, torch to, to, ex to uh, introduce Hebrew in Indonesian public. I welcome very much. Uh, again, I mentioned about the global, globalization in the end will include that kind of uh, issues. People cannot simply uh, talking about Israel, Palestinian Israel, conflict simply from their own perspective. They need to, to embrace more uh, alternative understanding. But uh, yeah, we have to, I, I'm a little bit cautious, little bit, just a little bit, not that much. That yeah, any new understanding is always uh, have to pass along the euphoria, euphoria uh, uh, stage, especially because uh, many Christian Indonesia, I'm talking from Indonesian Christian perspective, I cannot uh, represent the Muslim because not part of my research yet. Many Christian Indonesia cannot differentiate between Jews, Israeli and Christianity. Some of them simply talk that, oh, Israel is a Christian country, something like that. So 
this needs to be overcome. And that's why uh, exposure is important. I, I hope after this uh, colloquium, there is a more meaningful step further. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much. If I could ask you a question, I'm, I know this might not be your specific area of study, but I was very intrigued in knowing about the Amadi community and their use of Hebrew language. Um, if you could, can you say if, if in the, a yes, bit more? Uh, yes, uh, I, I got this from a website uh, from the blog, when, but because I have a friend from Ahmadi community as well, so I clarify to her. And yes, because uh, Mirza Gulam Ahmad, the founder of Ahmadi, one of the revelation, in the end of the very quick revelation, revelatory process of flow, in the end, there's a Hebrew uh, expression, very interesting because this, uh, you can see the interfaith dimension of this Hebrew uh, language. The, the words mentioned in the revelation was that Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani. It was not Hebrew, it is Aramaic. It's uh, stated in, or recorded in gospel, Christian gospel, Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani. And at the time, Mirza Gulam Ahmad didn't understand the meaning of that word. Then it's kind of a, a trigger or stimulating for their community to learn Hebrew in order to understand. I need to understand as well in full about this issue because this is only a initial information to me, but that's the issue. And I already checked to my friend, my Ahmadi friend. Yes, they, they organized a Hebrew course for internal purpose, even though it's not as intensive as, for example, uh, More Sapri conducted. Fascinating. Um, you can uh, send in your questions again, uh, just a reminder, either in writing or you can raise your hand and ask a question as well. Um, let's see. Uh, if we don't have further questions, it seems like at this moment we can maybe we can um, have more time in the end discussion session. So uh, okay, thank you so uh, very much, uh, Dr. Epiphras, for that insightful talk and giving us an insight into uh, Hebrew in Indonesia. Um, thank you so much. And thank you. Thank with you that. Much. With that, I want to move into our last session of the colloquium, uh, which is titled Teaching Israel Through Films. Uh, Professor Aaron Kaplan, unfortunately, could not be, cannot be with us here today in person live, uh, but he has, uh, you know, very graciously sent us a, a pre-recorded video of him. Uh, Dr. Aaron Kaplan is a Goldman Professor in Israeli Studies at San Francisco State University. He's the author, most recently, of a book called Projecting the Nation, History and Ideology on the Israeli Screen. Um, so uh, if I could ask the technical team to now play the video. Dear conference participants, my name is Aaron Kaplan, and I'm speaking to you today from San Francisco. I wish I could be present with you at the conference, but the events of the past year have prevented us from meeting in person, so we will do it virtually. And also because I'm literally on the other side of the world, I won't be able to join you live, so you will have to settle 
for this recording, but I'm very grateful for the organizers of this conference for inviting me to speak before you today. What I'd like to talk to you about is teaching about Israeli culture and history using the medium of feature films. For the past 20 years or so, in the United States, I have been teaching courses on Israeli history and, in Isra and Israeli culture through film, mostly to students who have no prior knowledge of uh, Israeli history or modern Jewish history. In most cases, those students do not even speak Hebrew, so we rely on films with English translations. But in some cases, uh, I use films uh, in classes with native Hebrew speakers or those who have very good Hebrew. And then, of course, we can make uh, more comprehensive use of the films also as a linguistic tool in the education. Now, when I teach my uh, seminar on Israeli cinema or Israeli history through film with American students, I usually begin with the uh, following exercise. Uh, in many cases, there are uh, cinema students in my class, American cinema students. And so I ask them, your dream, of course, is to make the great next American movie. So please tell us what this would involve. And by and large, I hear answers that revolve around going to Hollywood, to the major studios, getting a meeting with producers and pitching their idea for a film to those producers. And at some point early on in the description, money enters the question. They realize that making an American film is a commercial enterprise and that they would have to find an appeal to a certain audience in order to generate revenue and cover the expenses of films that tend to be very expensive in the United States. And all those considerations come into play. Then I asked them to think about what it would be to produce the next great Israeli film, not the American film. And I also tell them that over the past 40 years, the bulk of the budgets of Israeli films, and by the way, the average budget of an Israeli feature film is about $1.5 to $2 million dollars compared with 70 to $80 million, which is the average budget of Hollywood films, so just for kind of general context, that the majority of those budgets come from public funds in Israel, who provide the funding for the production of films, and they produce between 12 to 15 feature films in Israel annually. And I also tell them that those funds are not interested in creating blockbuster hits that would necessarily cover the expenses of the films, but they view the role as investing in a national industry in producing films. And the, they judge the success of Israeli films not by the number of tickets sold, but by achieving two really international goals being admitted to the major film festivals around the world, Venice, Berlin, Sundance, those type of film festivals, and being nominated to the major international awards, Golden Globes, Oscars, and so forth. So Israeli films who qualify to those festivals or award shows 
are regarded as successful and achieving the goals of those funds. But then I ask them to think, if you are an international body that has to judge Israeli films, what are you looking for? Will you be looking for a romantic comedy from Israel, a sci-fi movie, a detective story? Not necessarily. Hollywood tends to produce the best of those genre films, and they tend to be popular around the world. What you'll be looking for, really, is an Israeli film, something that is unique to Israel. And therefore, if you are a movie maker and you want to plan a film that would qualify through those funds, you tend to think of producing films that will be rooted in the Israeli experience. And therefore, by and large, Israeli films tend to deal with the Arab-Israeli conflict, with the role of the military in Israeli life, the various ethnic tensions within Israeli society, the place of religion within Israeli society, things that are characteristic of Israeli society and Israeli history. So, oddly enough, and this is almost tautological, Israeli films are really about Israel. That's the bottom line of what the, those films are. And for us as educators, then, they become an incredible tool because they tell in real time when they are produced the story of the society and of the culture unfolding before us. Also, because the budgets are relatively low, especially in comparison to major uh, Hollywood films, the films themselves are rooted within the reality of the Israeli experience. There are no elaborate sound sets. There are no elaborate effects. Films are shot on real location, and they really communicate and document the immediate Israeli experience, even if we're dealing with feature films. And I'd like to show you an example. We're going to talk about films, so we have to watch at least a couple of clips to make uh, the case clear to you. From a um, one of the greatest Israeli films, to my mind, it's a film from 1974, and the name of the film is But Where Is Daniel Vox? The film itself is irrelevant here, the story or the plot line, but I would like to show you a specific scene that is an example of the type of realism that exists in Israeli cinema, which really sets it apart from mainstream Hollywood films or other uh, big production movies. So, in broad description, it's the story of uh, two friends who meet 15 years after they graduated from high school, and they go to their high school reunion party, where they uh, find out that one of their best friends from childhood, Daniel Vax, has disappeared. Nobody knows where he is. So they go on a journey throughout Israel in 1974, trying to locate their high school friend. And they go to different classmates of theirs, trying to uh, uh, gather information. Here, they go to a friend who lives in an apartment building in Jerusalem. And she's not home, so they're waiting for her at the staircase of this apartment building. So let's just watch this scene. Don't worry about the dialogue or the narrative, just look at the scene itself. So now I'm going to share my screen and show you this scene. Oh, 
חושב, זה יכול לקחת הרבה זמן. גמרת שיעורים? מה? תראה, אני לא הספקתי לגמור את האנגלית, תיתן לי להעתיק מחר בבוקר. נראה לי אידיוטי כל הדבר הזה. יושבים שני אנשים מגודלים, מחכים לילדה מהכיתה שלהם, שתבוא ותגיד להם איפה גר ילד אחר מהכיתה. באמת לא מעניין אותך מה קרה לרקסי? לא מעניין אותך איך נראית מירה קיפיס היום? כל ההרצאות האלה של קורצווייל על השיבה המאוחרת אצל עגנון. And I will stop the scene right here. So you, you saw, we saw the two characters sitting in an actual staircase in an apartment building in Israel. And then the lights go, goes off. And what do we see? Complete darkness. Because this is not some artificial set. This is Israel. This is the reality. Anyone who's ever visited Israel, you will know that in apartment buildings in Israel, the lights in the common stairway have a timer and they go off after 20 or 30 seconds. Why? To save electricity. So you are in the midst of the Israeli experience. And I would argue that the majority of feature films in Israel are likewise rooted in the actual experience and therefore could be a wonderful pedagogical tool. When I construct my course on Israeli um, history or Israeli cinema, I tend to uh, divide the course up thematically. So I take certain themes and I explore how they evolve and change over time and what those changes and evolution could tell us about Israeli history and Israeli culture more broadly. So for example, one of the key themes that I explore in these courses is the representation of the military and Israeli soldiers on, in Israeli cinema. And there I can show quite uh, easily, I think, the evolution from early depictions. And when I talk early, I'm going back to the 1940s, even before the creation of the state, and then throughout the 1950s, of heroic representations of, of Israeli soldiers who make the absolute sacrifice, dying in the name of a greater cause, the creation of the state and the creation of a new society. And then as I advance in the course, I show how starting in the late 1960s, especially in the aftermath of the 1967 Six Days War, the depiction of the military and of military life begins to change. It becomes somewhat more critical, more introspective. Instead of just heroism, we also witness the price and the toll of war on the life and bodies of soldiers. And those uh, movies tend to be much more focused on the individual rather than the state as a collective. So this is one uh, theme that could be explored through a variety of films, starting from Hill 24 from 1955, which is an epic retelling of Israel's 1948 War of Independence and leading to contemporary films such as Waltz with Bashir or Lebanon that take a very critical look at the price that young soldiers have to pay in order to achieve uh, dubious national goals, certainly in the case of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982. 
Another theme that I explore in great detail in this course is the tensions between Ashkenazi Jews, the Jews who came from Europe, and were really the driving force of the Zionist movement early on, and were part of the Israeli establishment when the state was created in 1948, and the waves of uh, Jewish immigrants who came to Israel especially in the 1950s and early 1960s from Arab and Muslim countries, Mizrahi Jews. And this became a very common theme in Israeli cinema. And the first film to tackle those issues in a pronounced way is one of the most successful Israeli films of all times, Salah Shabbati from 1964, which was both a huge commercial success, but also uh, gained international recognition and was a finalist to the uh, in the Academy Awards in 1965. This is a comedy that describes the process of uh, absorbing immigrants in Israel and the uh, challenges that those immigrants faced in the Ma'abarot, the transitory camps where uh, Immigrants ended up living for months and in some cases years before they would get permanent housing from the government. And the uh, driving mechanism of the humor in those comedies were the ethnic tensions and stereotypes pitting Ashkenazi Jews and Mizrahim. So here I would like to show you the opening of the movie Salah Shabbati as an example of those tensions and how they play out on the screen. So I'm going to share my screen with you again. תיירים או עולים? חצי חצי. נו, זה יהיה יום. So here we see two families, one an Ashkenazi family getting off the plane and they count suitcases. 
that we see a Mizrahi family, the Shabbati family. They count children. And those stereotypes and ethnic differences play throughout this comedy, and they really set the course for a series of Israeli films, what came to be known as Burekas comedies, that were based on those ethnic tensions and really defined Israeli humor throughout the 1960s and 1970s. But then when we move to depictions of Mizrahi Jews and the tensions with Mizrahi and Ashkenazims in the 1980s and 1990s, we see a completely different look that tends to be much more critical, that does not use humor, but looks actually at the harsh social reality that was created as a result of those differences and the treatment of those immigrants by the old establishment. And we can look at other such developments in Israeli cinema, the depiction of Arabs on Israeli screen. In early Israeli films, it was usually Jewish actors who played the role of Arabs. As we look at the development of Israeli cinema, we will see starting in the late 1970s, more and more movies were actual Arab characters played by Arab uh, actors, dominate the scene, and the Arab, Arabic language becomes an important part of Israeli cinema. One other avenue of exploration could look at the place of religion in Israeli cinema and how initially Israeli culture was dominated by secular Jews and religion was marginalized or pushed to the edges of the screen, literally in some cases, and how in recent years more and more religious filmmakers are taking part in the industry and we have a much more complex and profound representation of religious life in Israel and the type of tensions and dynamics that represent life in those communities. So we don't have a lot of time and I'm sorry that I'm not able to share with you some more examples, but I hope that I was able to make the case to you that this is a, Israeli films are a wonderful pedagogical tool to construct courses that would relate the broad, rich, and complex experience of modern Israel, and that you would be able to use it and draw it and implement it in your own teachings on modern Hebrew and Israeli culture. Thank you very much, and I hope to see you in person in the near future. Uh, yeah, thank you uh, so much for that remote presentation. Um, we will now, we, we've reached the end of our planned sessions because uh, Dr. Kaplan couldn't be here himself. Uh, we will skip the Q&A parts for him and we will go directly into, just like as yesterday, into the breakout rooms to explain it to people who weren't there yesterday. Everyone will be automatically assigned to one of the four rooms and each of the four rooms will be led by one of the speakers uh, present here. Uh, you would have in each breakout room, there you guys would have 15 minutes to discuss uh, the, some, some of the questions that we have uh, already thought about or you can bring up some questions. And at the end of the, those 15 minutes, you'll be reminded one minute before that. And I ask the, the discussion leaders to collect the thoughts during that one minute and at the end of the, when we come back into the main room, you'll have about two minutes to relate those, those um, the key findings from the breakout room for everyone else in 
to here. Um, okay, so with that, and of course, and you, you'll be automatically assigned to one of the four rooms, but you can, if you choose, if you want to, you can switch rooms as well. Um, all right, thank you, uh, everyone. Uh, can we be assigned to the breakout rooms now? Okay, uh, thank you. Welcome everyone back to the main room. Uh, we would now, I would like to like ask uh, the four leaders of the groups to uh, say a few minutes, so to take a couple of minutes to uh, relate to us what was discussed in their breakout rooms. Uh, if I could first ask uh, Dr. Wazit to, uh, to start the discussion. You're on mute still. Thank you, sorry for that. I, I was very intrigued by the conversation uh, because um, the interest in the group was mostly to better understand how we can promote the study of the language within our context, uh, better understand um, how to build, a, how to create a curriculum that can answer the needs of all students how to message even, what kind of message we need to create in order to promote the language, what kind of processes a learner goes through in, when they're studying a language and what we can, how can we better understand this process in order to create the, the ideal curriculum uh, for these persons. So most of the discussion was about pedagogy, mostly focusing on the learner, which is a great thing because we do understand that and understanding the learner is a key to a successful. Um, <laughs> uh, is understanding. There, there was another issue is uh, how to promote the study of other language in the era of globalization. Uh, why, why, why actually explain a, and, and promote other languages while English is the dominant language of the world? And uh, how we, and I, I think this is something that we all need to discuss and, and talk about it. So the, the, why, especially in the era of global, globalization, other languages is extremely important. So that was the discussion about. Thank you so much. Uh, Ustad Sapri, if I could ask you to take a couple of minutes as well. Uh, <clears throat> thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Yes, it was nice discussion in the breaking room. Um, most of the participants in my breaking room are from Indonesia. Uh, some of them that are my direct stu uh, my students. I would like to uh, uh, point out the, the, the point that uh, my students said in the breaking room. Uh, yeah, he, you're asking me how to get uh, easy resource of a good Hebrew in Indonesia, and then how to certify all the students in in Jakarta. Uh, I answer him that you know that uh, Hebrew in Jakarta in in its early stage. So I'm thinking toward that. Uh, of course, it, it may need some time. Uh, due to the COVID that, you know, I had a discussion also with uh, Fardid a couple of years ago to, to improve the, the quality of uh, learning Hebrew in, in Jakarta. Unfortunately, uh, 
with the COVID that everything is postponed. So, but the, the request on the way, I'm, I'm preparing for that uh, on my mind, on my agenda. And uh, there is uh, input also that after uh, yeah, uh, Aaron Kaplan uh, present how the movie is very interesting uh, to insert during my uh, Hebrew lesson in Jakarta. Indeed, but you know, I didn't start that yet. I start with the songs uh, because uh, the, the communication that running and the movie quite a little, quite a faster for them, you know, very hard to understand. We did try uh, two years ago, we have to post, you know, every one word and we post that we try to, you know, to let them to hear that. And of course, with the poor of audio and everything that I stopped that. So uh, I think that it's less effective unless you are in advanced uh, levels, then we can show you the, the movie. And the note number three, the appreciation, the deep appreciation of uh, doing this kind of conference uh, should be should be continued, not only this time. And if we can do that once, once a year, it will be great. That's all from uh, my breaking wall. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Epaphras, if I could also ask you to take a couple of minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Lutfi. Yeah, we focusing more on the interfaith interaction. And Dr. Lutfi came up with a very brilliant ideas. Uh, how about the interfaith meeting is also uh, pushed push further to the linguistic level. Uh, as I mentioned in my presentation, that's in Indonesia. If, I, if I'm talking from the Indonesian perspective, then Indonesia is still Hebrew is a, a kind of a religious marker rather than simply a communication language. So we need to start also from the uh, religious based uh, of interaction. So Dr. Lutfi may bring up the, the possibility of interfaith meeting through linguist in the linguistic level. So learning to each other. Uh, we have, in fact, in Indonesia, uh, framework or something like that, uh, reading to each other's scriptures is called scriptural re reasoning, that we can push further to the level of language because uh, mostly coming from the uh, uh, Abrahamic traditions, especially, but of course we can extend as well to Buddhism because uh, Edmund, Edmund Lim from Singapore in my group also mentioned about the possibility to have to include Buddhism and so on into the conversation. So that's one thing I think important point to push the interfaith meeting to the level of linguistic uh, uh, exposure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, lastly, the, Dr. Khan, could I also ask you to um, say a few words and sort of take a few couple of minutes? Right, so we, in our break uh, our group, we were discussing, um, we had discussions about uh, the Jewish community in, in Southeast Asia and Singapore in particular, and um, issues such as uh, the interaction between Hebrew throughout its history and Arabic and Islam. Uh, so sort of issues relating to sort of the Eastern aspects, if you like, of the history of Hebrew rather than European-based type of uh, history of Hebrew. Um, we talked about, I mean, the historical depth of some of the Jewish communities in, in, in 
Southeast Asia and South Asia. Um, I mean, you know, we, 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 I was saying to them that, you know, in some of these communities have a very deep historical depth. I mean, the, the, the Jews of India communities in Kerala go back to pre-medieval pre time, you would see. Um, though some of the communities today are more recent migrants from mainly from the Middle East in the sort of 18th, 19th centuries. Um, we also, uh, I sort of, uh, we, we talked a bit more about relationship between Arabic and Hebrew, not so much in the sense that they're genetically connected, which, which of course they are, but how the, in the history of the transmission of, of both this pronunciation of Hebrew, which I, which I was talking about, and also in the transmission of biblical Hebrew in its sort of written form, how this how contact with his Islamic culture and, and the Arabic language has had a major effect on this transmission. To the extent that today, uh, even the, the modern Israeli Hebrew that's spoken, the way it's pronounced, um, there are many aspects of that pronunciation which actually has been influenced by Arabic in a much earlier period. So the sort of echoes of Arabic within modern Israeli Hebrew, which is not normally rec recognized. So, um, yeah, then finally, there was some discussion about, you know, motivations for students in from Malaysia and Indonesia to, to study Hebrew. And there was, um, there was some, some one person was saying how important it was. They felt having relations, diplomatic relations between uh, this, you know, the Southeast Asia and, and Israel was very important for them. Um, so that was a sort of like a sense of a sense of a sort of diplomatic perspective. So that, that's sort of roughly a summary of what we discussed. Thank you uh, so much, Dr. Han, and thank you everyone, uh, all, all our four speakers for collecting the thought and relating to us in a succinct manner. Uh, we have come to the end of our sessions today, but we are now uh, are going to move in to the closing remarks where I invite my uh, colleague, Dr. Clements Che, who is a research fellow here at the Middle East Institute to, uh, to help us sort of bring the conversation to a close and tie together some of the things. Uh, Dr. Che. Thank you, Ami. My colleague at MEI for moderating the various presentations throughout the two-day conference. On behalf of the joint organizers, the University of Cambridge, Middlebury Language Schools in Vermont, Sekolah Tinggi Theology Ramat Emanuel in Jakarta, and of course, the Middle East Institute at NUS, it gives me great pleasure to deliver the closing remarks. Let me first provide a synthesis of the thought-provoking speeches by our six speakers. Yesterday, Dr. Vardit Ringwald underscored the challenges of teaching culture to students of low language proficiency. And where stereotypes are concerned, there remains a crying need to knock down such walls, alter perspectives and change perceptions, all of which will help unshackle the delivery of linguistic knowledge to recipients of a different value system. This is where I would jump to Mr. Sapri Saleh's presentation and his profession of teaching Hebrew in Indonesia provides a viable case study to Dr. Rimbaud's earlier analysis. What struck me during our breakout room discussion, and I think this is a crucial point pertaining to raising the profile of the Hebrew language and culture in Southeast Asia, 
is that studying the Old Testament in Hebrew, the original language of the religious text, allows a Muslim not only to compare biblical and Quranic narratives without embellishments or add-ons, as was highlighted also by Professor Geoffrey Khan, but also how Hebrew has also adapted to, if not evolved according to vernacular forms of speech, in other words, to the localized communities. Certainly, Dr. Leona Epaphras's own findings have uncovered Indonesian-Israeli links, certainly unavoidable in a globalized world. With an increasing emphasis on interfaith relations all over the world, languages with strong religious affiliations such as Hebrew have by extension become a communicative link in interfaith exchanges. And as much as Mr. Saleh mentioned about skirting around geopolitics in language instruction, I think this is where Professor Yaron Perek's insights come into the picture, that the modernization of the Hebrew language has moved beyond a preoccupation with legal texts. That is to say, the revival of the language involved parallel developments in Europe and the Near East, and later in the context of Arab-Israeli conflicts. Similarly, when Professor Aaron Kaplan spoke of assessing Israeli films, these films must be characteristic of the country's historical trajectory. As such, my point being, associating or dissociating language from culture has an impact on both memory and history because memory is life embedded in societies of individuals and the collective, while history is a reconstruction of spontaneous memory. So I believe the various breakout room discussions, despite their brevity, indicate that there is more room to fine tune the nitty gritty of fostering scholarly cooperation in Southeast Asia. In particular, there was a comment made on justifying the teaching of modern Hebrew in the region and the channels through which such justification can be made. So with that, I would conclude by reiterating the words of our chairman, Bilahari Kosikan, that Israel's position in Southeast Asia deserves an overdue re-evaluation, that there is a need to better understand Jewish culture in the region. And of course, we at MEI hope that this two-day event will not be the last. And we hope that our speakers will move things forward in practice. And with that, on behalf of MEI, I sincerely thank our speakers and audience for joining us. And special thanks to our events team for making this operational, as well as to Elizabeth Gurner. Finally, to the speakers, if I could ask you to stay on following the conclusion of the event, there will also be a photo shoot or a screenshot, if you like. So over to you, Amin. You have the last word. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Clement. I think uh, you've wrapped it up and summed it up very nicely. If I could just ask uh, everyone whoever it's possible to turn on their uh, camera so that we can at least take a picture or a screenshot of the attendees. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, this was a um, very rigorous two days of conversation. And I think as you mentioned, as everyone said, hopefully this is only the first step and we can come together various times again. Thank you everyone for taking out the time on a weekend to attend this session. Uh, in particular, thank you to all the speakers uh, for joining us from various parts of the world at odd times often um and joining in this very important discussion and thank you to the uh, special thank you to the mei events team for all the effort that went into the background uh, these online events i know are incredibly difficult to coordinate uh, with people in different places um and and they've done a fantastic job with it so thank you the events team and thank you everyone for joining us today
um, that would be all hope to see you see everyone very soon again bye thank you bye thank you very much thank you have a good thank night you very much. thank you bye bye thank you bye thank you for that